With 75,000 people tuning in to KRCL each week, that's a whole lot of heart. And we want you to know that we are super grateful for your support. Amplify your love for KRCL and help us ring in the new year with a year-end gift at krcl.org. Thank you so much. This is Radioactive. It's a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, DIY creatives, and anybody else who wants to get in on this conversation with us. I'm Laura Jones, executive producer and host of the show. And if you missed it, we just wrapped up the top 100 albums of 2021 as voted on by you, the listener. If you missed it, there's going to be a rebroadcast on December 31st, New Year's Eve, but you can go to krcl.org and check the playlist to see how it all shook out. But number one, John Batiste's We Are album, an excellent choice. You did well. And congratulations to John and Eugenie and eBay for getting that all together since early this morning and running right up until six o'clock here with Radioactive. Coming up on the show, we're going to be talking with folks at nonprofits in town that work on issues related to folks who are disabled, the access challenges they have, but especially when it comes to permanent supportive housing. Bill Tibbetts from Crossroads Urban Center will be here and will also be sharing a big chunk of a webinar they had on December 1st featuring housing and disability advocates speaking on why Utah needs more permanent supportive housing. Rebecca Dutson from the Children's Center Utah, which along with Governor Spencer Cox and First Lady Abby Cox, as well as the Kem Gardner Policy Institute, Later this week, we'll be hosting the second annual Ready, Resilient, Utah Early Childhood Mental Health Summit. And Matthew Weinstein of Voices for Utah Children, which recently issued its Children's Budget Report, which tracks how the Beehive State is doing for the youngest among us when it comes to education, healthcare, child welfare, and more. A holiday reminder that there are ways to help out in the community this time of year. We have a list of food, clothing, and gift drives online at krcl.org. You can also check the rallies and resources page for events coming up. But one of the things I noticed a lot of while I was out and about this weekend doing a little bit of the Christmas shopping is that so many of uh, the shops are partnering with nonprofits to, to provide that connection. I saw Salt Lake County Animal Services over at the Carhartt store at Sharon's and Holiday drop off a coat. So please let me know when you see those things. I'd love to give them a shout out here on the show. You can email any drive that you are involved in or you know of to radioactive at krcl.org. Then you can check out this uh, growing list and do what you can to help out others in the community. For instance, the Other Side Academy has its angel tree going. You can help create a memorable Christmas for the students at the Other Side Academy, busy working on rebuilding their lives, and they would love to have your help in their holiday celebration, making sure it's filled with gratitude and family-like connections. For many of their students, it's gonna be their first peaceful, healthy, and sober holiday celebration. You can find out more by visiting their website, theothersideacademy.com. That's just one of many listings that we've put together for you at krcl.org. Every other year, Voices for Utah Children publishes its children's budget report. The report documents how much the state of Utah invests in children through the state budget in seven functional areas, including education, health care, and child welfare. This year, the report's top line, Utah is spending more on children than ever before, but education funding is at a record low. To find out more, let's pass the microphone. Hi there, I'm Matthew Weinstein at Voices for Utah Children. Thanks so much for giving us some time on Radioactive. Really interested in digging into this report since we're mere weeks away from the next general session of the Utah legislature. So Matthew, tell us, how does Utah's investment in children, and how do we define children, compare to its previous peak before the Great Recession? Great, thank you. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an interesting story. And uh, right, how is it possible that we're spending more on kids than ever before, yet we're at a record low? So I'm, I, I'll tease that out a little bit. Uh, with the way that we define children is zero uh, to seventeen, uh, up to you know under the age of eighteen, and we look at all the different areas where we put uh, state tax resources into children. Of course, number one, uh, about 90% of that is education, but then there are a number of other areas as well. And this is all on our website at utahchildren.org. You just scroll down and you can see 
the first uh, latest news item is about the children's budget report. Um, and so when we look at the dollar amount that uh, we're putting into children, uh, and this is where the good news is, we adjust for inflation and we do it on a per child basis. Uh, and so on that basis, uh, what we found is that we're spending uh, as of fiscal year 2020, the last fiscal year for which full data was available, uh, we spent $7,488 per child, uh, mostly on education, but also in these other areas. And that's up 18% on an inflation adjusted per child basis compared to 2008, which was sort of the last peak year of the uh, last economic cycle before the Great Recession. And 2020 was the you know, peak year before we got hit with the uh, coronavirus recession. So, you know, that's good news. We are putting more into children on a dollar basis, inflation adjusted per child than in the past. So we certainly want to celebrate that. What about population growth? I mean, that's yeah, playing so, into all this, right? Yes. And we adjust for population growth in that uh, because, you know, Utah does have the fastest growing population in the country, according to the last census last year. And uh, we also have the highest percentage of children as a share of our population, 29%, compared to a national average, I think, 22%. Uh, so, uh, children are a top priority in Utah, uh, as they should be. But, and this is where we have the not so good news, uh, then the question is, that we look at is, uh, since over 90% of the children's budget in Utah is going to education, the other thing that we look at is what we call education funding effort. And that's defined as the percent of Utah personal income that we're putting into education, into K through 12 education. And, you know, we actually for that one went all the way back to the 1990s. And we have the charts uh, on our website uh, at this web page. And what we saw is that back in the 1990s, Utah was a top 10 state for education funding effort. Uh, and now we're ranked in the bottom 10 for education funding effort. Uh, we, back then in the 1990s, were putting 6% of our personal incomes uh, through our taxes into K through 12 education. And now that's down by over a third. We're down to under 4% of our personal incomes that we're putting into education, 3.9%. Uh, in the most recent year for which we have this data. And that is why we say we're at a record low for what we're putting into education uh, when we compare it to the way our incomes uh, have grown. And that's why we're still among the worst in the nation for education funding uh, here in Utah. So what does this mean overall? As we're trying to track more and more tech companies here for quote unquote, higher paying jobs to you know, lift all boats, yet we're not investing in the least of our population that needs the help to get off to a good start. Yeah, no, it's, it's a real conundrum. And, uh, the, you know, the state's economic development strategy has been largely built around tax cuts. You know, this idea that if we want to attract businesses, uh, especially high tech businesses, we need to have low taxes. Um, and you know this is sort of what we've been doing for 35 years now. We've been cutting taxes and cutting taxes and cutting taxes. It's been on average $100 million every year of new tax cuts that the legislature has been passing. So if you multiply that by 35 years, it's now $3.5 billion every year that we don't have to invest in Utah's future things like education, uh, because of all the tax cutting we've been doing. Well, and the governor's budget has $160 million in tax cuts he'd like to That's right. To do. That's right. It just continues that. We passed about $100 million of tax cuts last year that were primarily aimed at the top end of the income scale, unfortunately. Uh, so, 
Now, it's interesting, though, that there's now an increasing debate within the business community about whether that's the right way to grow Utah's economy. Uh, at the Silicon Slopes conference uh, last month, uh, we saw a number of the high-tech business leaders saying, I don't need tax cuts. <laughs> You're giving me tax cuts to keep me in Utah. Well, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying and I don't need these tax cuts. Uh, and we're also hearing them say that Utah's education system is not producing the level of graduates uh, in computer science and these sort of high-tech uh, sort of needs uh, that they need. And we get what we to, pay for. And they're having to import people, you know, from California, for example, who then move here and increase the population growth and drive up the cost of housing. Wouldn't it be better if we could generate that workforce internally? And that's an area where our underinvestment in education is holding us back. We're behind the national average uh, for high school graduation when you adjust for demographics. What do I mean by that? If you're white in Utah, you're graduating high school right at the rate of whites nationally. If you're Latino, you're actually three points behind the national high school graduation rate uh, for Latinos. And that's you know about 20% of our kids at this point. Uh, so the future of our workforce depends on closing those gaps at the high school level yeah. and not just at the high school level. If you look at uh, achievement of bachelor's degrees and above, in higher education, what you see is that the lead that the older generations of Utahns had compared to the nation in bachelor's degrees and above, we've lost that when you look at millennials. Mm -hmm. uh, when you look at age 25 to 34, we are now behind the nation for bachelor's degrees. And that is a huge concern. We're not yeah. investing what we need to generate the workforce that it's going to take uh, to continue to have prosperity and uh, economic growth in the future. Well, and for years, our college system has been saying that high schoolers are not arriving to college ready to do college-level work, which plays into all of this as well. Um, Matthew, I assume you saw the article recently by ProPublica and the Salt Lake Tribune about the fact that the state of Utah claims much of what the LDS Church does on um, it's basically it's it's welfare rolls, what it does. And when I look at the things that you measure, food, nutrition, child wel welfare, income support, I, I see that we cut corners as a state and kind of cook the books. And then we sit here wondering why our investments aren't paying off. Well, they're paying off if you want to just recruit the high-end companies to come work here and have Californians move here and buy up all the houses. Okay, I'm on my high horse. I recognize this, Matthew. I'm getting there, though. So what is it that we need to do? Because I see uh, a great graphic that you have on your website, how upfront investment in children pays for itself. It's a virtuous cycle. And maybe that's where we need to direct our investment. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, the other thing we uh, did last month was we uh, released a list of the unmet needs uh, because of the way we've been cutting taxes and cutting taxes and cutting taxes. We haven't been able to make these upfront investments in education, uh, in preschool, in school nurses, uh, in homeless students, in having full day kindergarten and after school programs, not to mention Things like health insurance for all kids. You know, we have uh, the fifth worst rate of covering kids with health insurance in the nation, worst in the nation among uh, our Latinx uh, children, uh, as well as, you know, there's been a lot of publicity in recent years about mental health and substance abuse and how we're not putting in the resources we need with that. And that relates to uh, areas like criminal justice reform, where, you know, our legislature has actually been very progressive in recent years in wanting to reduce the number of people we lock up and instead make investments in things like mental health and substance abuse to uh, keep people out of jail and ensure that they can, you know, have a successful life out of uh, incarceration. But the report that they did in 2020 by the Legislative Auditor General found that this justice reinvestment initiative is not reducing recidivism 
and actually saw recidivism rise because we don't have the quantity and quality of drug addiction and mental health treatment that's needed. And that's a perfect example of how you could we could save money in the long run if we made these upfront investments. And one of the things that your graphic points out that this leads to reduced social dysfunction. So if the popular, the zeitgeist conversation is about social cohesion, let's talk about social dysfunction and where it originates. And again, we get what we are willing to pay for. Well, and that's, you know, uh, uh, I, I heard uh, earlier this year, uh, Senator Mitt Romney was actually comparing us to other countries on things like uh, marriage and child poverty and saying we need to increase the uh, child tax credit. Uh, he had a great proposal on that, uh, similar in some ways to the one from uh, President Biden that was implemented and hopefully will be extended for at least another year uh, by Congress. Uh, if you compare us to other countries, we have much higher levels of social dysfunction than you know Canada, Germany, France, the, you know, the sort of comparable uh, free market democracies around the world. And there's a link between what we invest up front. We also have the lowest level of taxes uh, of any of those countries. And we're not making the upfront investments that we need to prevent child poverty, uh, to have a well-educated population, to avoid criminality and incarceration and, you know, that's sort of the, the violent crime that we have in America is off the charts compared to other countries. Uh, and so is our level of incarceration. Making upfront investments is the only way to break out of that cycle. And, you know, if you keep cutting taxes, you're just not going to have the resources to do that, especially at the state level where we can't go into debt. You know, we have to have a balanced budget. As we head into 2022 and look forward to a general session of the Utah legislature, what is Voices for Utah Children going to be doing to press these points home? Yeah, no, we're, we're certainly, uh, you know, there were some good things in the governor's budget. Uh, he did propose uh, making full day kindergarten available uh, to every family that wants it. Uh, that would be a big step forward. Uh, and on the tax issue, you know, I do give him credit for uh, even though we're skeptical about the value of tax cuts, if they're going to do tax cuts, there's certainly a big difference between cutting the income tax rate, uh, which is what the Utah Taxpayers Association is proposing, what the legislative uh, leadership in the majority party is proposing is cutting the income tax rate, because that mainly benefits upper income Utahns. Uh, our income tax is actually the only tax that we have in Utah that's not a regressive tax. Uh, most of the taxes that most people pay are the sales tax and the property tax and the gas tax, which are all regressive taxes. The only tax that actually lines up with Utah's income distribution is the income tax. And that means that three-fifths of the income tax is paid by the top one-fifth of taxpayers, four-fifths of it is paid by the top two-fifths of taxpayers. That lines up with our income distribution. That's sort of where we are in terms of income inequality, even in Utah, where we're not as bad as a lot of states. So that's where the governor's proposal to have a refundable tax credit uh, is um, far preferable. Uh, we're still running the numbers on it. We're still analyzing it. Uh, but uh, it does seem to be something at first glance that would primarily benefit low and moderate income Utahns and uh, not be so top heavy the way the income tax rate cuts have been. So as we wrap up the year, we are asking our guests what our listeners can do for nonprofits. What can they do for Voices for Utah Children? Yeah, I mean, definitely go to our website and sign up for our emails. Uh, so that you can keep up on what we're doing. Uh, we send out a lot of action alerts during the legislative session. Follow us on Facebook uh, and Twitter. That's another way that we stay in touch with the public. Of course, donations are always welcome. We are a 501c3 nonprofit uh, focused on uh, advocacy and research around issues impacting children. Uh, but the main thing is to just be engaged uh, and make sure your legislators hear from you uh, during the legislative session. 
we've been able to have an impact that way in the past. And we know we can in the future with the public support, because, you know, when it comes to cutting taxes, uh, oftentimes, you know, legislators feel like they're responding to public demand. So we know that a lot of our uh, job when it comes to tax cuts uh, is, you know, we have to get the public on board uh, and we have to get the message out to the public that, uh, you know, we need to delay gratification on things like tax cuts. Uh, we also need to be fair uh, and make sure that, uh, you know, our tax system is not a regressive tax system, which unfortunately it is at this point. Well, thank you so much for what you and everyone over at Voices for Utah Children do in our community. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks so much, Laura. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Voices for Utah Children and consider getting involved. As the nonprofit says, children can't vote, hold press conferences, or donate to political campaigns in order to protect their interest. So we got to do it for them. I'm Laura Jones, and you're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. The Children's Center Utah is partnering with Governor Spencer Cox and First Lady Abby Cox and the Chem Gardner Policy Institute to host the second annual Ready Resilient Utah Early Childhood Mental Health Summit on Wednesday this week. It's a virtual event. And to find out more and about the mental health of our children, let's pass the microphone and find out more. Rebecca, will you introduce yourself to our listeners, please? You bet. And thank you so much, Laura. I'm Rebecca Dutson, and I serve as president and CEO of the Children's Center Utah. We'll put a link in tonight's show notes to the webinar so people can sign up and participate as they'd like. But I'd really like to talk about what's behind all of this. Second annual, so the two years of the pandemic (laughs) underscoring this issue when it comes to children and mental health. How are we doing? How are our kids doing? Well, I can tell you that the past two years have taken a toll. And I want to just let you know, however, that we were working on the summit, the first one, before the pandemic unfolded. And the reason I want to point that out is because Children's mental health issues have always existed. What has happened in the past two years has absolutely compounded them. So what are we talking? Can you give me some of the data on this? You bet. Um, About a year ago, uh, we commissioned a study that was released by the Kempsey Gardner Policy Institute to really look at the state of early childhood mental health in Utah and its related systems. And one of the most striking statistics, I think, that came out of that um, was looking at some national studies and a range of estimates suggested that approximately 10 to 20 percent of our children between the ages of birth and eight. So in Utah, that's about 460,000 children are at risk of experiencing mental, emotional, developmental, or behavioral challenges. And so when you quantify that number, you know, we're talking about a really large group of really young children, somewhere between 45,000 and 90,000 kids. That's a huge number. And what are some of the factors going into it? Is it about access to health care, mental health care? There there are a lot of things that contribute to it, right? There are environmental factors, and then there are biological factors. And all of these things kind of come together and contribute to an individual's experience and underscoring that that in itself is really complicated because no two people are alike, no two circumstances are alike. And so when you think about things that are contributing to it, um, there are a lot of general things that we think about. Um, children who um, come from disadvantaged homes and are in low-income families. Um, children who've experienced abuse, emotional and physical abuse, neglect or dysfunction, those things contribute to it. Um, they may have developmental challenges going on that are contributing to their mental health and their well-being. And so it's really a number of things, Laura, that contributes to to the mental health of our our children. 
Outside of being fortunate enough to have health care that includes mental health care, what services are available to families and parents in Utah? And can you also describe the role that the Children's Center Utah plays in that network? Right. And the, the conversation about mental health, and especially when we're talking about infants, toddlers, and preschoolers, is while experts in the field have known about it for a long time, is really a developing conversation. So it's not the first thing that people think of um, as they're interacting with their children every day, that my child may have something more going on than just something that's developmental. And so a lot of times that conversation, and we encourage parents and families and the caregivers, you know, to start that conversation and uh, begin with the pediatrician that pediatrician has that longstanding relationship with that child and family. Um, In terms of services that are available, first of all, I I think anybody who's paying attention to the news at this point recognizes the lack of providers that we have across the spectrum in providing mental health. It is even more acute when we're talking about services for children ages birth through six. So um, as as families reach out and they talk to their pediatricians, um, the Children's Center Utah often receives referrals from them. So our team is dedicated. We have a team of licensed clinicians, psychologists, we have psychiatrists on our team, and paraprofessionals who really wrap services around the child, the family, and their caregiver to develop the treatment plan that best suits that child. So it's very individualized. Very individualized. And one of the other things or factors in going into this is each individual child is unique, but we can also um, draw some conclusions from the data about this issue and how much harder it is for children who are ethnic minorities, um, children of color, et cetera. And that is just true across the board with healthcare in general. So what are some conclusions that you'll be discussing at this virtual uh, summit on Wednesday to move move us forward in the state of Utah when it comes to mental health care for youth? And we're talking again, those most vulnerable zero to eight. Yes. And To me, one of the most exciting things about the summit, um, and especially to have the engagement of Governor Cox and First Lady Cox, is raising awareness about children's mental health. I just think a lot of people, they don't stop and think about it. So that's a huge um, goal of the summit. And I've just danced around that a bit. Like when we're talking about mental health challenges of children zero to eight, what what are we talking? I mean, I can think of the big ones, you know, um, autism spectrum disorder or something like that. But what are we talking about? I can think of mental health when it comes to adults, but not not children. Right. And thank you. Our children experience the range of emotions that we do. Sometimes they don't have the words uh, to express it, but they have anxiety. They have depression. Um, They can have other things going on that are contributing to their behaviors, such as ADHD or potentially autism spectrum disorder. So there are a number of things contributing to that. And, And the thing that makes this field so unique is that our team is trained to tease out what is developmental Um, what is behavioral, what's going on, you know, with their emotional um, and mental health. So at the the summit on Wednesday, it's all on the table. Do you have a keynote speaker you'd like to highlight? We do. Her name is Dr. Brenda Jones-Harden. And Dr. Harden is with the University of Maryland. She has conducted so much research herself in this arena Um, She will be talking about the effects of the pandemic on very young children. Uh, She'll be talking about the developing brain and how all of those things are working together. And of course, the benefits of going upstream to address early childhood mental health. 
So the second annual Ready Resilient Utah Early Childhood Mental Health Summit held virtually on Wednesday this week. Rebecca, thanks for the info. Where can people learn more and sign up, register for the event? They can head straight to childrenscenterutah.org slash summit. And we're taking registrants right up until the start. So we would love to have everybody engage with us. And what can the community do for the Children's Center Utah this holiday season? Well, we have a wish list right on our website. So you'd find that in the same place. And then, of course, we'd be thrilled to accept donations. Um, The treatment we provide is more expensive than the reimbursements we receive. And I think we're most proud that we do not turn away anyone from service. And it's the community and the community support that makes that possible for the children, families, and caregivers who we serve every day. Well, Rebecca, thank you that all thank you for all that you and everyone at the Children's Center Utah does in our community. Have a great holiday season. Thank you so much. Rebecca Dutson of the Children's Center Utah. Check tonight's show notes to register for the summit coming up on Wednesday or to help out this holiday season and support the nonprofit that provides comprehensive mental health care to children and their families across the socioeconomic spectrum. When we come back here on Radioactive, Bill Tibbetts Crossroads Urban Center will be talking about permanent supportive housing for folks living with disabilities. Thanks to George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation for investing in KRCL and communities throughout Utah. Support for KRCL comes from the Utah Division of Arts and Museums. They provide support, services, and funding for artists and cultural organizations across the state of Utah. More at artsandmuseums.utah.gov. Hey, it's eBay Hamilton. Join me Friday, December 17th at 4 p.m. as we welcome winter with a Friday solstice party. Two hours of feel-good soul music to help warm us up as we kick off the first week of winter. It's also our year-end fun drive, and we'll be raising money to help keep the music playing into the new year. Become a soul sustainer and tune in Friday, December 17th from 4 to 6 p.m. for our Friday Solstice Party, only on KRCL. And you do not want to miss that. This is Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now!, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm and Night Train with Michelle Tanner at 10.30. John Florence starting your brand new day at 6 a.m. tomorrow. And our entire programming lineup is online at krcl.org. You can catch the last two weeks on demand of any show on KRCL. December started with housing and disability advocates speaking out on why Utah needs more permanent supportive housing. In fact, we have a big chunk of this webinar that we're going to play in just a bit. But first, I wanted to check in with Bill Tibbetts of Crossroads Urban Center of Utah to get a take on what's happening as this issue moves through the legislature's interim committees and into the general session in January, where they're talking about spending money from the Build Back Better and American Recovery Plan Act and permanent supportive housing in relation to our quote-unquote homeless situation. And with unique take on this, Bill Tibbetts is now joining us. Hi, Bill. How you doing? I'm doing okay. So let's first of all define some terms. We're going to play this this uh, a big chunk of this webinar later this hour, but I would like to define some terms about permanent supportive housing, what it is, what it isn't, who gets it, who doesn't get it. Okay. Permanent supportive housing is housing for people with a disabling condition that has led to them being homeless for at least for at least 12 consecutive months or three or four times in the previous three years. And so it is housing really for people with disabilities, generally for people with with mental health uh, disabling conditions who uh, without this ongoing support uh, will will be homeless. I mean, I think it's it's a really um, and so our our okay our our core message really is that we should stop talking about this as a homeless service and see it as being a mental health service. See it as being healthcare. Uh, that coincidentally, when it's provided, it also reduces the need for homeless services. Uh, in reading your response to what the legislature and its uh, subcommittees talked about in November, 
it, it really seems that there's this urge to get people in and out of supportive housing quickly as a response to homelessness. But like you're saying, so many folks who do end up chronically homeless are dealing with mental illness. And as we've expanded Medicare, Medicaid, we should look at it in that regard in terms of supplying services to those members in our community who really need this help. Yeah, I, I think what it was interesting is we were preparing for this webinar. We looked looked at some into some statistics about mental illness and it's really interesting because, you know, we, we always talk about homelessness like it's this big problem, but really it, it's it's part of it's always a small part of much bigger problems, right? I mean, so uh, you know, there there for every person who ends up in permanent supportive housing, there are 19 people with serious mental illness who know who don't need permanent supportive housing. This really is a service for the people who, who whose mental health needs are, are acute and persistent um, to the extent that they, uh, and who don't have other supports, don't have other resources. This is a, is a really specific uh, intervention that's, that's not needed most of the time. Um, but I, as one of our panelists discussed in the webinar, it, it costs less money to uh, keep someone in permanent supportive housing for a month than it does for them to spend a single night at, at, at a, a psychiatric unit in, in, a, in a hospital or a state hospital. You get to this one point I want to draw out from you. Utah must build permanent supportive housing to meet the current need and plan for growth and need based on population growth and other factors. And you get to the numbers in your statement. Um, drawing from the state's own audit that Utah currently has a chronic homeless population of about 700 people. And if permanent supportive housing units were built for each of these people, the total number of permanent supportive housing units in the state would be just under 4,000. That means the statewide need for permanent supportive housing services would be a bit under two out of every 1,000 adults in the state. Now, we pay for this whether we deal with this or not, right? With how it then spills out into the community and folks living on the street. So this seems like the fiscally responsive thing to do, Bill, to build this housing. When we let people with with mental illness um, go without treatment on the, on the street, they end up interacting with the police a lot in a way that spends it costs money. Interacting with the police can lead to spending time in jail, which costs money. Uh, people who are not in, in supportive housing are more likely to go to the emergency room. They're more likely to go to to the to a psychiatric unit. Um, all of those things are so expensive. I mean, it really is. It, it saves money and it it saves lives. I mean, there are people who. I mean, if, if you can't quite take care of yourself well enough to, to stay in an apartment, to keep a roommate, to do that, you the odds that you're going to be able to take care of yourself sleeping outside in the winter are, are really low. Yeah. And, and that's why every year there are, pe there are people who do die on the streets. Yeah. The annual vigil on the longest night of the year coming up December 21st. You can check rallies and resources at krcl.org for more details. But uh, another point that your group makes is that state funding generally makes up somewhere between 5 and 10 percent of the funds for the construction of permanent supportive housing units. Seems like a small slice, but without it, the financing deals don't work for permanent supporting supportive housing and the units don't get built. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, we in the webinar... Tara Rollins uh, goes, talks about a couple examples where you have like a $15 million project and the state's share of that is a million dollars. And a million dollars is a small share of 15 million, but it's a big enough chunk of money that if you don't have it, you just don't get the financing for the project as a whole. And, and so, I mean, I, there are projects that um, we've seen where uh, they had the financing all but lined up, and, and uh, then uh, it, the inflation, like there were a couple projects that were delayed because construction costs went up. And so uh, the financing they had wasn't enough anymore. The, these are not, um, these are projects that are built, uh, aren't, aren't being built by people who can just stuff, 
you know, oh, well, an extra million, who cares? This is, um, if, if First Step House is, is building permanent supportive housing for people who are coming out of their, their addiction treatment programs, um, they had to struggle to come up with every dollar that they did for, for building that. And they, they, they can't, um, if the state stops paying their 10%, that means there's just going to be less that gets built. Yeah. And this takes us back to the summer and the Coalition of Religious Communities putting up tents on the grounds at Salt Lake County Government Center, uh, supporting this call that $200 million American Rescue Plan Act funds be dedicated to affordable housing, period. But then you also have an ask that $10 million of that go to permanent supportive housing construction bill. Yeah. No, the, so the uh, the state has a commission on housing affordability, and they endorsed a proposal to spend two hundred million of the, uh, the the American Rescue Plan Act funds coming to state government that can be used for a variety of purposes. Um, the two hundred million of that be dedicated to affordable housing. Uh, we support that and, and feel like uh, at least. $10 million of that, of that total should be used specifically for helping to foster the growth of, of permanent supportive housing to meet the current need. And let's go back to where we started, and that's how effective permanent supportive housing is. This audit that the state did um, notes that 95% of people placed in permanent supportive housing do not return to homelessness, which further bolsters your argument that permanent supportive housing is, is health care. Permanent supportive housing serves the most dip, like the the most treatment resistant, service resistant pop people who are homeless. They are they you know I mean if you've had an unsettling encounter with a homeless person on on the street asking you for money or something that and it left you feeling a, a little uneasy for some reason, that is the kind of person who ends who who's who moves into permanent supportive housing? People who really um, have have it's not um, this isn't what you know. Over eighty percent of the people who go to a homeless shelter are without are in and out within a month or two and don't need ongoing help. Most and, and uh, people don't even realize what that is, you know. But the people who you see like camping outdoors for years um, or multiple years. I mean, those are the, those are the people who actually move into permanent supportive housing when it's offered to them. I saw this firsthand. I was working at Crossroads Urban Center when we built our first uh, wave of 500 units in, in Salt Lake County. And um, at that, there were people who had been, I saw every day, every single morning, they'd come in and use the restroom, use the phone. Um, and when they start. And, and, you know, if you ask them why they were sleeping outside instead of a shelter, they say, oh, I like being outside. It's, it's, this is what I want. When they were offered a, a room of their own, they moved in. That's what happens. People who, um, so if, if you're worried about people, you know, sleeping outside, if you're worried about, uh, peop, you know, the, the mental health of people who are sleeping outside, the, the way to, uh, to help those people is to offer them housing with the supports they need to actually stay in that housing. Bill, where can people learn more and get involved in their voices to the work that you all do at Crossroads Urban Center? Um, well, for work on, on this topic, it, it's probably best to sign up for our weekly email update on hunger and homelessness on the Crossroads Urban Center website, www.crossroadsurbancenter.org. Bill Tibbetts, thank you so much for the update and something for us to definitely keep an eye on as we head toward the general session of the Utah legislature. Thank you. Have a great holiday season. Hey, you too. Thanks. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Crossroads Urban Center. And now let's get into some of this webinar that they held on December 1st, Housing and Disability Advocates Speaking Out on Why Utah Needs More Permanent Supportive Housing. It starts with Bill Tibbetts. This is actually a really timely conversation about why Utah needs to invest in permanent supportive housing. Um, this is timely for three reasons. One is uh, that our state um, has heard that we're likely our waiver to integrate Medicaid services 
uh, into housing services to, to um, provide housing related services to people who are coming out of homelessness um, is likely to be approved at the beginning of next year, which means next month uh, or the month after that. Um, at the same time, we had an audit of homeless services that suggests that permanent supportive housing is, is not as effective as it, as it should be. Um, and there were serious problems with that audit, which we'll talk about. The uh, last reason this is timely is because the state legislature starts meeting next month and there is a proposal uh, there will be proposals to put significant funding up to $200 million or even more uh, in American Rescue Plan Act funding into affordable housing, including really targeted affordable housing um, for like permanent supportive housing. And so uh, my name is Bill Tibbetts. I'm the deputy executive director at Crossroads Urban Center. And I can't believe the amazing people who've agreed to participate in this conversation. I'm so Grateful for all of you. And our, our first uh, speaker is uh, Tara Rollins from the Utah Housing Coalition, who uh, has agreed to, to share more about the appropriation request made for the session and the way that state funding, the role state funding plays in uh, making affordable housing projects possible in the state. Uh, so um, thank you, Tara. Thank you very much. My name is Tara Rollins and I work for the Utah Housing Coalition. Why is it important for us to invest um, $200 million um, into our community? I always say into our community because that's what it's all about. Um, and so in terms of the audit, um, the audit I was very disappointed in because it, it was saying that people were staying too long in permanent supportive housing. The word permanent should say something. Um, and so it's very important that we have housing first in a place where we have permanent supportive housing so people can get um, their care that they need and when they need it. Um, and as well as become, you know, part of that community in that building. And so um, as well as some people will move on um, to, um, other housing. So, um, you know, I encourage everyone to really look at really what the definition of this is. Um, and so quickly, I wanted to debunk the cost the state has put into these projects because, you know, during the audit, they talked about how much Magnolia cost. And so I just wanted to go through the project and, um, and the reality of it. And so it was 65 studio units and it was targeted um, for the homeless population. And so the cost of Magnolia was roughly, um, you know, $15 million. And it came out to be around $230 um, per unit. And so um, when you really look at who invested in it, you know, we had Salt Lake City funds. We had 1 million of only Walker, which is state funds. The 1 million um, other million that came out of only Walker is federal funds and that's the National Housing Trust Fund. And then you had home dollars. Um, I put this out and then the biggest portion was private funding. Um, and so really why, is housing so costly? Well, it's expensive right now, very expensive. And also to compete in tax credits, you need to have certain elements in your project. You know, after tax reform, tax credits went down in value, cost of construction, and also Davis-Bacon. If you're using federal funds, um, you need to follow certain prototypes and pay in trade workers um, is very expensive in um, Davis-Bacon. So I really wanted to point out the cost savings. Um, you know, when you look at the cities and states cost, if we don't get people housed, you know, we have encampment cleanup and other expenses through the health departments, you know, cities cleanup, fire, police, jail, the mayor's time and upper management time and designates and full-time staff. You know, state, we look at the unified funding. If we weren't using so much money um, in, services, um, we could actually do more case management and have people be more successful. And also I wanna point out prison costs. And then the private sector, um, the cost is, you know, the stress in the community, you know, break-ins, theft, private property, trash, um, ambulance being used as taxis to emergency rooms, emergency rooms excessively used, disruption to businesses. These are just a few 
right off the top of my head. Um, so another project, oh, the project that um, we're talking about right now, they put a million dollars in. And so what does that cost per unit? That's only $15,000 a unit the state invested in this particular project. And so I think it's fair to say that that is a very good investment per unit for the state. Also want to point out Pamela's place, you know, same target population, there's a hundred studio units and the cost um, we're thinking, um, cause I don't believe the state has the final cost. So just want to point that out um, that it's almost 13 million and the per unit was um, less. Um, and so when you look at, once again, private sector brought most of the money to the table. Um, and then only Walker, the state funds, it was only $823,000. And so what that equates to is um, $8,000 a unit, which is another incredible investment um, for the state. Um, and so, you know, examples of PSH in Salt Lake County, there's, um, I just chose nine to look at, um, and I just want to point out how well-maintained they are and managed extremely well uh, by our community partners. And um, that's my portion, and I believe if we were able to invest, um, you know, funding in permanent supportive housing, we would be able to um, get many people off the street. Thank you. The next person who, who has agreed to share, uh, to talk with us is um, Taquani Oliver, who is a um, member of the, Dis the Disabled Rights Action Committee and is uh, agreed to talk about how supportive housing um, is a mental health service. So I uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, one of the things that I can say as someone who has been unsheltered and who had a very late in life diagnosis of their own um, mental health disorder, I was diagnosed autistic uh, about four years ago. And it's become quite, a, uh, it's become quite blatantly aware to me um, how little accommodations for that disability are made within the mental health field. And one of those being available housing, supportive housing. And, you know, we, we hear a lot of the cost associated with supportive housing, but we forget that if we can have supportive housing, we're employing case managers to help individuals like myself um, to get themselves to a place of independence or interdependence within a community. Now, for example, with Disability Rights Action Committee, we have we work with a grant program through the state called the New Choices Waiver, where a part of our program, the, the case management, is to get people who are in um, facilities into independent housing um, and and. But the thing is, the scope of even that program is limited. And so if we could expand housing as an accommodation that's needed, especially for neurodivergent folks, um, especially for folks who've had persistent um, housing insecurity and have trauma when it comes to being housed or sheltered, um, to be able to meet the individual needs of those people rather than um, put him in these these monoliths of well this will work with one people and this won't work because not everyone will need permanent supportive housing. I know for myself, um, I had some pretty supportive housing taken care of for the last two years, and in that I was able to get my own case management, and now I am in more independent housing situation, and those things wouldn't have been possible. Um, I am in emergency rooms less often. Um, I do have a community of support who help in, in, uh, inform me of the things that I wasn't aware of, especially being a person of color. You don't have a lot of access to healthcare care um, as a younger person. 
And so there's a lot of things about my own health care, about my own health management practices that I'm having to learn. Because when you're poor, when you're a person of color, when you're neurodivergent, there are a lot of barriers to getting just basic access to basic health care. And for the first time, I've had health care for two years. And if you give access to those resources and make it accessible, make it um, where you can navigate those resources, people will use them. It's that it becomes so complicated and inaccessible for folks like ourselves um, that it needs to become an accommodation that is covered by Medicaid and the resources are there. Um, so me, okay, so our next person who has agreed to show up and, and present is, is um, Andrew Riggle from the Disability Law Center, who um, is, has agreed to talk about why it's problematic to stigmatize people with mental issue, health issues for needing help for more than a short-term crisis. Um, I think that relates to why so many of us were concerned about the audit. Thank, thank you so much, Andrew, for agreeing to, to help with it. Thanks, Bill. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to join uh, to join you all today. Um, unfortunately, instead of listening to the voices of those with lived experience, bolstering case management and building on proven practices in other states, Utah has decided to follow the lead of the medical and legal establishments. Consequently, while the state invests heavily in beds and facilities, the number of individuals in our expanded civil commitment system with nowhere to go continues to increase. While the, while the Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health mentions the housing crisis uh, in its block grant application, there is no plan to find appropriate and safe housing for individuals with serious mental illness or co-occurring substance use disorder. While recovery residences may be important to the continuum, there needs to be a focus on long-term housing first. There are a variety of housing options and supports that can be utilized to find long-term integrated solutions for persons affected by mental illness in the community. There need to be choices which enable individuals to choose the housing which best fits their needs. Therefore, the state must focus on, on the development of housing which is physically accessible, deeply affordable, and does not segregate residents with mental illness from the larger community. Uh, we are we are happy to share a couple examples if there's interest. The recent audit of the state's homeless service system suggests three res three reasons residents remain in permanent supportive housing. Be uh, the first one is because they refuse to address their mental illness or substance abuse. Uh, they are unable to, they are unable to attain self sufficiency. The second hypothesis is that they enjoy a sense of community. And the third one is that they are unable to, um, that they are unable to find um, subsidized housing in the community. While the last two explanations get to the core of the real issue driving today's conversation, the lack of deeply affordable housing, the first, the first one demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of the need of the nature of, ser of serious mental illness or substance use. The medical establishment likes to think of most illness or disease as short-term incurable. When a patient is cured, they are recovered. However, the same paradigm doesn't usually work for serious mental illness or substance use disorder. In this realm, recovery generally refer refers to the lifelong process of managing one's illness or disease and the, and the expected ups and downs that come with it. There is no such thing as cured. If we limit ourselves to the medical understanding of recovery, we run the, uh, we run the risk as the audit's first recommendation, first explanation does of blaming a person for their, for their perceived failure rather than the system for its actual for its actual failure to, pro to provide adequate supports and resources. Sadly, this seems to be the default response more often than not because it's, easy, because it's easier and less costly to ignore a person than it is to fix a problem. 
Ultimately, it's simple. Utah must take responsibility for closing the revolving door of hospitalization or incarceration by investing in alternatives beyond suicide prevention and crisis stabilization. Andrew Riggle of the Disability Law Center and just one of the many panelists featured in the Housing and Disability Advocates webinar, and they were speaking out on why Utah needs more permanent supportive housing. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the entire presentation. And my thanks to Bill Tibbetts of Crossroads Urban Center for sharing this clip with us tonight on Radioactive. In the show notes, again, a link to the entire presentation now posted online. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks to everyone who is part of the show tonight and you for listening and plugging into your community with KRCL. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow.